This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to GYC again. I'm sure you've been welcomed several times in the main hall, but it's good to see you here. Um, as we begin the workshop sessions here at GYC. Um, as we start, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we pause to thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to study together, to look in the past, to examine where we are today. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to be members of the Worldwide Seventh-day Adventist Church. We thank you, Lord, for the heritage that we have. And I pray, Lord, that as we um, spend these moments together, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be our guide, to be our teacher, to illuminate our minds. I pray that you would speak through me as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> it's good to be here with you. Um, as you know, my name, you can see on the screen, my name is Adam Ramden. I come from England. Has anyone here been to England? Ah, got a few, got a few. Uh, from England, I work there as the North England Conference. We have two conferences, a North and a South. I work as a North England Conference Youth Director. And so I've been doing that for a couple of years now. It's a privilege to work with young people um, in the position that I have. The workshop that we're doing this week is called Lineage, Know Your History. How many of you have seen the uh, lineage videos that we've released uh, this year? Anyone seen? Most of you have seen, not all of you, okay. Um, it's a series of videos that we released this year, um, 48 in total videos on church history. The, idea, the thinking behind it was, I was, as working as youth director, was that a lot of the young people today, not just young, older as well, but a lot of young people today have lost a sense of, or we have lost a sense of our identity. And that's fueled in some ways by the fact that we're not really studying like we used to as a people, and we don't really know our heritage and where we come from. So we created a video resource called Lineage Journey, which is a series of videos based on history, you got it, the journey of the church over time. And each of the videos were just five minutes long. We released one video a week. We've kind of finished this year's series now, um, and there's 48 in total. But it took people on a journey from Constantine all the way up to about the year 1800. And it, the idea was to give people a snapshot as to where we've come from. We put them on social media as a, as a video um, resource. That, um, so it's, it's something that's there free to see. Um, on our website, on YouTube, and on Facebook. If you haven't seen them, check them out. We also have the booth where we have some DVDs as well. I'll introduce some of the team later on. Um, uh, we've got some photographers on the team, some videographers on the team, and so I'll introduce a few of them later on so you can just kind of see who they are, and if you've got any questions for them, um, you can see them at the booth later on. Um, so the first workshop that we're doing today is entitled, the first, this, this one here, is entitled The Reformation's Dangerous Idea. We're just looking at a few of the broad themes of the Reformation and what, what were some of the ideas that it was founded on and how were these, in a sense, dangerous or going against the grain of, of the church culture at the time. 
And so that's the title for the first one. The second one we've got, uh, which comes just after this, is called Faith and Formulas. We're going to be looking at kind of how the progression of belief um, changed from Luther um, to, um, to John Wesley and how, and how as Adventists, where do we get our heritage on faith and, and so on from, what we believe on salvation. Then we have a workshop called um, A Hill to Die On. Then we have one called... Um, the foundation of all freedoms, and the last one is going to be called Swaying the Future. And so the Reformation's dangerous idea. If you look at the screen there, you'll see a map, and that map tells you what the religious persuasion of Europe was around the year 10 to 1100. And so you see kind of, there's a line there, and then you see the words there, Roman Catholic. So in all these countries here that we know today, like France, Germany, Britain, Ireland, Spain, Portugal, you know, all of these countries, the, relig the religion in the countries, the official religion in the country was Roman Catholic. And that was the only religion. You didn't have an option of, well, I don't really want to be a Roman Catholic. I'd rather be something else. You were born into a Roman Catholic home. That was your heritage. That was your birthright, so to speak. And that was the religion that you were born with. And there were no other options. You couldn't just pick and choose. It's almost like today, you know, kind of the way we think about our national identity or our ethnic identity. You know, if, you're bo if you, your parents are Korean, you were born as a... You're Korean. You, you can't be like, a, you get to 10 years old, you know, I don't want to be Korean. I want to be Chinese now. You know, you can't do that. You are, you're, you're Korean. It's fixed from birth. And it's kind of the same back then. You were born as a Roman Catholic. That was the only option that was on the table if you were born in that part of the world, Roman Catholic. And so you were born into a very uh, Roman Catholic country, community, church. That was the only option that you had. And so as you look through the Reformation, certain things started to change. And we'll look at some of these uh, later on in this presentation. But this was the church structure at the time. The church structure was you had in Europe the Pope. Or you could say the world. The Pope, or in Europe you had the Pope. Underneath the Pope, and this is still the Roman Catholic Church structure today, you had the cardinals. Underneath the cardinals you had the archbishop. Underneath the archbishop you had bishops. And then underneath the bishop you had the local priest. Then under the priest, you had the poor, lowly church members. So that was the church structure they had in Europe. It was pervasive across the whole of Europe. Every single country was like that. Now, as the Reformation would progress, there would be different church structures that would come up. Later on, you get the Episcopalian church system, which was based, uh, which originated in England with the, with the Church of England or the Anglican Church. Then you would later on get the, uh, pr the Presbyterian church system, congregational church system, and then you have the representative church system as well. Just a quick question, which one of these do we have? Not quiz, I'm just asking. <laughs> We've got respiratory. Well, there are some parts of our church system that are, very, that are very much like the Presbyterian system. However, it would be incorrect to say we are Presbyterian fully. Because ours differs slightly. I would say that we're more of a representative church system than we are Presbyterian. We're definitely not Episcopalian, and we're definitely not congregational. Congregational is when you have a 
I don't know, just one single standing church, and that's their only structure. Kind of like a lot of these TV preachers, they are congregational. They just have one church, there's no structure, all the money comes in there, and they get all the money, and that's it. Congregational. We fit more down here, though it's got elements of this in it. But at the time, in Europe, the 1200s, 1300s, that was the church system that they had, and that was the church system that people were born into and what they saw. Now, what was one of the... So when you think of the Reformation, you think of some of the ideas of the Reformation. Some of the ideas that stand out. Number one. Now, as I share these ideas or what some of these dangerous ideas are, you're going to look at the title of dangerous idea. Then you're going to look at what the dangerous idea is. And the overwhelming response in your mind is probably going to be, duh. Like, how can you consider... The Bible is the ultimate foundation for all Christian belief and practice to be a dangerous idea. As a Christian today, that's just normal. We would say as, you know, our heritage as Adventists, as Protestants today, that's just normal. But at the time, if you go back to the 1300s, that was extremely revolutionary, was extremely dangerous. But why? Because people didn't even own Bibles themselves. You didn't have access to a Bible. So to say, oh, by the way, the foundation of everything we believe and practice needs to be based on a book that I can't even read in my language that you don't have access to is just like, wow. It's like today we find this new book we discover. And then someone comes along and says, you know what, guys? Everything we do in church has got to be based on that book over there. Like, Whoa, what, what book? Yeah, this one over there. The Bible. So for Luther, the Bible was central to life and thought of the church and to the personal devotion of the Christian. But I want to take you on a little journey. I'll take you to some different places. In <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a little bit of a cough. Um, take you to some places. Lutterworth is a town in England. It sits about two hours north of London, if you've ever gone to England. Um, too many tourists go to England, and all they see is Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. There are some excellent sites to see that have great religious heritage. Um, Lutterworth is a small, sleepy English market town, but it's the workplace of John Wycliffe. Um, it's about 40 minutes from my house, so I've had a chance to go there many, many times. Now, before Luther, you had a man called Husson, a man called Jerome, but before them, you had a man called John Wycliffe. Ellen White refers to John Wycliffe as being, anyone know? The Morning Star of the Reformation. It's not just Ellen White, but multiple Christian authors use that term as they refer to Ellen White. They say, I mean, not Ellen White, I mean, John Wycliffe. They say he was the Morning Star of the Reformation. But why did they call him the Morning Star? What were the reasons why he was the Morning Star? Well, first of all, what is the Morning Star? It's like the first star that appears on the horizon before the sun comes up. So it's kind of like that, that early warning sign, so to speak. Now, <coughs> John Wycliffe was born. The context of his birth, um, some of the issues that were going on in England at the time was England was paying a tax to Rome. So if you rewind 100 years from John Wycliffe, he was like 1350. If you rewind 100 years from him, you come to the year 1215. Anyone know what happened in 1215? A significant document was signed that is more seen today as being significant than it was when it was actually signed. Magna Carta. Magna Carta was signed 
Why was Magna Carta signed? Well, there's a couple of reasons why it was signed. One of the reasons was the barons of England, who were kind of like the land rulers, they were very upset that the king had agreed to pay the Roman church a thousand crowns per year in tax. Like, how can we be paying money to this foreign country for no reason? So they kind of, one of the things they did was sign the Magna Carta, but, but it kind of rumbled on after that. It was repealed, and it kind of rumbled on where there were some years they were paying the tax, some years they weren't paying the tax. When John Wycliffe came along, the first cause he championed was to get England free of the tax to Rome. He studied at Oxford. He was a highly respected scholar. Um, you know, when you read about these reformers, they all, nearly all in England, studied at Oxford or Cambridge which sounds a bigger deal today than back then. Back then, there were only two universities in England. One was called Oxford, and one was called Cambridge. So you had a choice. You went to this one or this one. Um, it was only in 1832 that we got more universities in England. Before that, it was just these two. He studied at Oxford, but he was highly respected and was a leader in the country. He was sent later in his life, the last 20 years or so of his life, he was sent to the parish of Lutterworth. You can go and visit the church today. This is the interior of the church. Um, and it's, there's original parts of it. Um, some are not so original. This is the out, exterior of the church um, as it looks today. Quite a you know, standard English country church. And that's the bird's eye view of it. There's the church there. We took this as a drone shot when we were filming for Lineage. So you see, it's not a very big town. It would have been even smaller in his day. It was, it's not a big town. It's not a big city. And that's where he was sent. Um, and there in, in the church, you've got this little monument that kind of uh, sacred to the memory of John Wycliffe, the earliest champion of ecclesiastical reform in England. He was born in Yorkshire in the year 1324. In the year 1375, he was presented to the rectory of Lutterworth, where he died on the 31st of December, 1384. Sorry, it was in the last nine years of his life. At Oxford, he acquired not only the renown of consummate schoolman, but the more glorious title evangelic doctor. His whole life was one impetuous struggle against the corruptions and enrochments of the papal court and the impostures of the devoted auxiliaries, the mendicant fraternities. His labors in the cause of scriptural truth were crowned by one immortal achievement, his translation of the Bible into the English tongue. This mighty work drew in him indeed the bitter hatred of all who were making merchandise of the public credulity and ignorance, but he found an abundant reward in the blessing of his countrymen of every rank and age by of whom he unfolded the words of eternal life. His mortal remains were interred near the spot, but they were not allowed to rest in peace. After the lapse of many years, his bones were dragged from the grave, consigned to the flames, and cast into the, assign it, the adjoining stream. And so that's the, an inscription that's there in the church that reminds people that even come today of the heritage that we read in the book Great Controversy, and it's still there. If you go to the church, I mean, these are kind of some interesting things. You've got his, um, his cloak, his, his um, preaching cloak that they believe was his, um, they're not 100% sure, but they believe that it was his kind of, you know, put in a frame now. This is his chair, reported to be Wycliffe's chair, and this is a pulpit made from the wood from Wycliffe's pulpit. Anyway, those are kind of like Reformation relics. <laughs> Half-decent ones. Um, so John Wycliffe, what did he do? He trained preachers. Now, why was that revolutionary? Have you ever heard of a great Roman Catholic um, preacher? Not really, even today. Why? Because in the Roman Catholic Church, they don't focus on preaching. What do they focus on? Confession, mass, the sacraments, etc. That's what you focus on. That, that's the, you know, the, the core part. It's not about who's the greatest Roman Catholic preacher. So he was kind of, he broke with tradition. He trained men that were called lollards. And they would travel the country sharing and preaching the gospel. And so this in itself was revolutionary, just to have traveling preachers. 
Now, we today would say that's a standard part of Christianity. We come to GYC. It's full of preachers. We go to church. We look at the, who the preacher is. Here, though, that was new. He trained preachers who would travel the country, and they would share the gospel. He was anxious, it says, that they would not settle. And they were, avoid, they were to avoid frequenting, hunting, and taverns, but to give themselves to the serious study and preaching of the word of God. And they soon covered the land, and the enemies complained they went all over England. This is what Wycliffe did. He was going against the grain. During his life, Wycliffe had three papal bulls against him. He was blessed in his life, though, that... Um, during his life, you had the death of one pope, which was Pope Gregory, and that when the one pope died, what happened, there was a papal schism. Instead of there just being a natural successor to the one pope, there became two popes who both said that they were the true messenger of God. And so the church split two popes. And so Wycliffe lived during a time where there were two popes. This, though, was a blessing to him in the sense that these guys were so busy fighting each other, they didn't he didn't get the full wrath of the Roman church on him because there was a papal schism that was going on. In many ways, that, would, that was a blessing to him and it allowed him to live and die in a, a natural death as he did, even though he was dug up later on. Um, he was a man of great conviction. One of his uh, quotes I love about this guy was, I shall not die. Uh, he was on his deathbed, one, kind of deathbed one time. I shall not die, but live and declare the wicked deeds of the friars. He was really against the friars, which were the, you know, the, these guys that would travel the country and just basically beg off the people. And so he was always speaking against these, the, 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 these friars for you know, the, the, the indolent lifestyle that they lived. Um, what did he do? Uh, how did he live? In, uh, his methods included expo preaching expository sermons from the Bible. Now, that, as I said earlier, is kind of revolutionary because Roman Catholics weren't known for being preachers. They're still not today known for being great preachers. Expository sermons from the Bible, expounding the text. What does the Bible have to say about himself? Wycliffe, interestingly, did not support the widely held practice of these mystery plays. Um, and he believed that the oral teaching of the church should always be superseded by the simple preaching of the word. So it wasn't about, you know, the, everything else. It was coming back down to the Bible. And he did away with some of the elaborate singing of his day, and he spoke about the frivolous performances that stirred vain men to dancing more than mourning. In some ways, you can see some similarities between today and his time. And some of the things he stood for he had a great evangelical fervor in his messages. Someone said, though he was an academic, he could plead with men from his heart. For him, it was not enough for the preacher to assert his views, to say what he thought was right. He had to prove it from scriptures, and Wycliffe wanted the scriptures to be able to interpret themselves. And so these are a few of the things that why, this is why he was morning star of the Reformation. It wasn't just because he translated the Bible into the language of English. But his ideas on church life, number one, the preaching. Number two, preaching just based on the Bible. Number three, doing away with all of these kind of mystery plays and uh, frivolous singing and dancing, doing away with these, focuses, focusing back on the Bible. He was ahead of his time. He was revolutionary, but not just in these things, in his beliefs, his beliefs on purgatory. Now, it's not what we would believe, but it was, a, it was kind of a step in the right direction. He believed that purgatory was a place where saints rested. Now, today we would say as Adventists that purgatory is all wrong, amen? 
There's no such place as purgatory. But, you know, from a place where they're tormented to a place where they rest, that's kind of a progression. So he said purgatory, they're not to being tormented, they're just resting. Um, and that was against the, 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 the view of the day. Um, it, was in the, it was customary to dwell on the torment in order to make men depend on the church. He believed in the authority of the scriptures as the per person of one author is to another, so is the merit of one book to another, since Christ is infinitely superior to every other man. His book, he said, is also superior. This is another area where he was way ahead of his day, way ahead of his day. And we're going to cover this more in, I think, our, our fourth presentation. We're going to go into this in a bit more detail. On the doctrine of the church, John Wycliffe was way ahead of the reformers who would even come 200 years later. The only alternative he's to relying on the support of the state to bring about the changes needed in the church was to send out preachers with the word of God. Now, at the time, how were the preachers paid? How are, okay, how are preachers paid in Adventism? Tithe, all right? You return your tithes, the church gets it all, divides it, and sends it out. How are preachers paid in the Anglican church? In England, the state. we pay our taxes, tax dollars, pay the preachers. My cousin is a Lutheran minister in Iceland. Okay? My Icelandic side of the family are all Lutheran. She's a Lutheran minister. She's paid directly government tax dollars. Okay? Now, in Wycliffe's day, at the time, we were being paid from the state. What's the problem of being paid by the state? He called the clergy in his day a Caesarian clergy. Caesar clergy, Caesarian clergy. Why? Because he said, render to Caesar that which and God. So he's saying, these are the clergy of Caesar. Caesar's paying the clergy, so the clergy are only doing whatever Caesar wants them to do or doing stuff to make Caesar happy. They're never going to talk against the state because the state is paying them. And so Wycliffe was way ahead of his day. And when I say way ahead of his day, I mean Martin Luther never got this. Like the English Reformation of the 16th century never got this. John Calvin never got this. Wycliffe was literally 1300s. He was about four or five hundred years ahead of his day. And it wasn't until America as a nation formed where you had a church without a pope and a state without a king that his ideas actually became reality. Um, he insisted that voluntary offerings of the people should be the only revenue of the church and believed that the enormous wealth of the church was what corrupted it. These are why Ellen White says, and other Christian writers, they say, that John Wycliffe was the morning star. It wasn't just because he had a little bit of light and the rest of them came along and added to it. In some ways, John Wycliffe even had more light than some of the reformers who came after him, and they were still playing catch-up a couple of hundred years later. He also believed in a separation from Rome. He urged his followers to have nothing to do with the friars. And he's one of the first reformers that we know who personally Pope as being Antichrist. Okay? 1370 or so. He's the first to denounce the Pope as being Antichrist. So Wycliffe is rightly called the morning star of the Reformation. Now what's the second idea, Reformation's second idea? The text of the Bible, and all the preaching based upon it, should be in the vernacular. The Bible should be in the language of the common people. It should not be in Latin. 
or just available in the tongue of Hebrew and Greek. Luther, the fundamental concern of Luther and later reformers, was to break the clerical and academic monopoly on the matter of faith. Faith was, not, was to be dem democratized by making its foundational resources available to all who could read and insisting that they were all welcome participants in the discussion about the interpretation and application of their faith. It wasn't just, oh, here's the Bible. But I want you to be an equal with me as we discuss, as we interpret these ideas, as we discuss our faith. Now, this was a revolutionary new idea. Today, this is standard practice, so it's something I think we've just kind of forgotten. You know, you go to church today, and how many people actually still take their Bible to church? We just kind of take it for granted. If you go to the big churches, your big institutional churches, and I guarantee you they've got a lost property in most of these churches that's full of Bibles that are left there. I run summer camps in England, and every year, at the end of summer camps, there's a whole stack of Bibles of all the teenage kids. Nice Bibles too, engraved, dear so-and-so, love from mom, blah, blah, blah. Nice Bibles just left at the end of summer camp. Kids don't care. But then, it was revolutionary. It was a dangerous thing to give the Bible to the people. Now, John Wycliffe is also called the Morning Star because he was the first one of the major reformers who put the Bible into the language of the people. Now, if you know about the different Bible translations and different Bible texts, he translated what's called the Latin Vulgate. It's not the purest text, it's not the best text, but it's better to have an English Bible from the Latin Vulgate than it is to have no English Bible at all. Later Bible translations would come from the Hebrew and the Greek. He translated his from the Latin. There were some kind of inaccuracies and so on, but it was a huge, huge step in the right direction. And he translated this in 1382, only two years before he passed away and before he died. Um, these are some quotes. This is what the church believed at the time. In the 13th century, it was decreed, we forbid the laity to possess any of the books of the Old Testament and New Testament, except maybe the Psalms. But having any of the books translated into what tongue? Into the vulgar tongue. That's how they, you know, we say, oh, no, no. the Bible in the vulgar tongue, they called, was strictly forbidden. So that was the attitude at the time of John Wycliffe. And then when he translated his Bible, notice what a leading archbishop said about him. This pestilential and most wretched John Wycliffe of damnable memory, a child of the old devil, and himself a child or pupil of Antichrist, crowned his wickedness by translating the scriptures into the mother tongue. Now that's crazy. But this gives you some like, what did the church think at the time? You know, we look at it, he was so against the grain. He was called the child of the devil, people of the Antichrist, and he crowned his wickedness by translating the Bible into the mother tongue. But his translation was key, as many other countries too. It wasn't just England and Germany, France, and so on. The Bible was key in the formation of the language. His translation marked an epoch in the development of the English language, as Luther's did in the history of the German language. Chaucer has been recognized as the father of English poetry, but many recognize that Wycliffe should be recognized as the father of English prose. Because as the Bible was translated, it helped solidify the language. Now, this would later be reinforced by William Tyndale, who you could arguably say had a bigger impact on modern English today. 
But Wycliffe set the groundwork. He set the, he set the, the pace. Ellen White says, Wycliffe was one of the greatest of the reformers in breadth of intellect, in clearness of thought, in firmness to maintain the truth, and in boldness to defend it. He was equaled by how many? Few who came after him. Wycliffe was a great man. He was a great man. But if we fast forward in time, this foundational principle, the Bible and the language of the people, in Oxford, you had a student called William Tyndale. Now, William Tyndale, I think, is one of the most underrated of the reformers. Personally, sometimes people ask me, who's your, who, who's your favorite reformer? And I, I never kind of had one. But now my favorite reformer, I think, is William Tyndale. From what he accomplished in his life and what he stood for. He was a genius um, of his day. In 1408, the Oxford Commission forbade the translation of the Bible, just reinforcing. This, took, this comes just 20 years after um, Wycliffe. They said, okay, we forbid the translation of the Bible. William Tyndale was at a dinner once where he was sitting around with another, another priest or, or teacher, and the conversation veered to the Bible. And the person said these words that have become famous, we would have been better if we were without God's laws than the Pope's. Settle. It would be better without God's laws than the Pope's. Now, William Tyndale's response is profound. And his response was, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Profound. Profound response. I will cause the boy that drives the plow. When you think of a plow boy, what do you think of? We don't really have plow boys in America or Western Europe anymore. When you think of a plow boy today, someone who's going behind a horse, plowing the ground, what do you think of? A farmhand. You think of an uneducated someone, someone who hasn't been able to go to school because they've had to stay home and work on the family farm to, to, to you know, eke out a subsistence living. He says, I'll cause the boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Now, William Tyndale deliberately set to write a Bible which would be accessible to everyone. It's profound. You have the King James Bible in your hand today, some of you, and it's a very profound piece of literature. And much of William, um, the King James Bible, we owe to William Tyndale. Notice some of these phrases. Some of these phrases. They have infused into um, everyday speech. So much so that people who say them don't even know they're actually saying William Tyndale's words. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. That's in the King James, but it goes before the King James. It goes to William Tyndale's Bible. A moment in time. It's a phrase that people use all the time. Fashion not yourselves to the world. Seek and ye shall fight. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Judge not that you be not judged. William Tyndale. The word of God which live, liveth and lasteth forever. How about that one? The powers that be. Use that one often, don't we? Hey, why didn't that happen? Well, you know, powers that be. And people who aren't even Christian use that, you know? The salt of the earth, a law unto themselves. It came to pass. He had a beautiful way of writing William Tyndale's. Filthy lucre, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Live, move, and have our being. Lick the dust under the sun. Signs of the times, we have a whole magazine, and it's named after William Tyndale's phrase. Let there be a light, fell flat on his face, the land of the living, pour out one's heart, the flesh pots of Egypt. 
Go the extra mile, the parting of the ways. How about that one? Let my people go. I mean, that's kind of infused into contemporary culture. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These phrases come from William Tyndale's Bible. Now, now why are some of these so profound? And why have they lasted, the, 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 um, why have they lasted from 1542 or whatever it was, 1546, I believe, until 2017, and we still use these phrases today as if they're just normal? What, did, what was his phrase? He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that what? Drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. It was William Tyndale's intention, not just to translate the Bible, but to do it in such a way that the plowboy, uneducated, could read and understand the Bible and profound divine thoughts easily, just as much as an educated man could. Now, how did he do that? How did he do that? To make this completely clear, he used monosyllables frequently and in such a dynamic way that they became the drumbeat of English prose. It wasn't just to make the Bible in English. It was to make it in English readable by the plowboy. The word, profound phrase, the word was with God and the word what? I mean, he's explaining a deeply profound thought there that Jesus is God, all with, how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten words or so, all single syllable. It's amazing. That's why it's kind of lasted. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And many of his idioms were monosyllabic. The effect of this was immeasurable, not only in England, but across the world. This was profound, what he did. Today, you can go to the British Library. This is uh, just outside King's Cross Station in London. You can go to the British Library, go there inside the front door, and there in the British Library, they've got a room on the left. It's called the John Ritland Room, and there they've got all their antique books. So you've got the, um, the uh, old music from Bach and all these guys. You've got original Beatle lyrics. I don't know why they're there. Um, and you've got William Tyndale's Bible. There's only two today. The British Library paid a million pounds for it. Um, but notice this. A complete analysis of the authorized version, or the King James Version, um, was made in 1998. And it was shown that Wycliffe's words account for 84% of the New Testament and 75.8% of the Old Testament books that he didn't translate the whole of the Old Testament. But what he translated, 75.8%, is basically the King James. Some people say if the King James Bible was published today, it would get sued for copyright fraud. Because they kind of just cut, paste, adjust slightly. It, it doesn't so much speak against their moral, ethical character as it does speak about how great William Tyndale's Bible was. That even though they went through extensive research as they translated, they were like, well, you can't really beat the word was with God and the word was God, we'll just take that. So he, Tyndale, is the mainly unrecognized translator of the most influential book in the world, although the authorized King James Version is ostensibly the production of a learned committee of churchmen, it is mostly cribbed from Tyndale with some reworking of his translation. But what about Luther? Luther also translated the Bible into the German language. And what do they say? You know, you know in many ways, I've, I've read about Luther. What Tyndale did for the English language, 
Luther did for the German language, but probably much more marked a difference than even Tyndale did on the English. He had a way of translating the Bible into the German language that really solidified the German language, what they have today, and it was a really profound translation. The same kind of thing that the theory, or, or sorry, that the motivating factor, the boy that drives the plow. He really wanted the German everyday man to read it. Luther's German translated was finished in 1534, and before this, there was no common German language. His Bible, though, helped to unify all the different dialects that were in the different regions of Germany and solidify the German language, in, in a sense, to what they have today. His Bible became the direct source for Bibles in Sweden, Denmark, Holland, and Iceland. Luther's real genius was in his colloquial turns of phrase before him. The Bible was a theological text. His translation transformed it from not just being, sorry, not just into understandable language, but what? everyday language. It contained conversations you might hear Jesus speaking as a German carpenter to German fishermen. He did with the Bible in German what Tyndale did with the Bible in English, though some say he even did it to a much greater degree. Third idea, salvation is free, unmerited gift of God received by faith. We're, not, we're going to cover this more in our next presentation, so I'm not really going to cover this much now. He summarized by the just shall live by faith. For Luther, a misunderstanding, or, or by denying this, the church had lost its identity, and the Reformation was about restructuring beliefs and practices consistent with their core foundational belief. And so this kind of became a, a catchphrase of the Reformation. We'll cover this more in our next presentation. But what about this one? Another Reformation, a dangerous idea of the Reformation that is foundational to Christianity or Protestantism today, Adventism today as well, is that there was no fundamental distinction between the clergy and the laity. Now, this was a key belief of Luther. It was a key belief of many of the Reformers that there's not this, this, this huge divide. But he believed in the priesthood of all believers and leveling the playing field. The priesthood of all believers had huge implications. Clergy and laity could both receive communion. Clergy could be allowed to marry. That was a revolutionary idea. Um, Martin Luther believed he, he married. Each congregation should be able to elect its own preachers and pastors. The aim was to eliminate the idea of a spiritual elite. That's key. So this was the Catholic Church structure. You got the Pope, the bishops, um, the, sorry, the Pope, the cardinals, the archbishop, the bishops, the priests, and then you got the local church, which has no authority in church administration. Luther and the different reformers, they challenged this papal hierarchical structure, and you had different um, church structures that came out. Now, William Tyndale, uh, let me share with you a little bit about William Tyndale. I believe it's, this is in London. That's the Ministry of Defense. That's the equivalent of our Pentagon. Um, it's there in London. The River Thames is just here, where I'm standing. And there's a statue of William Tyndale there. And on the statue, um, I'll read a phrase in a minute. But from 1524 until when he died, due to a conflict with King Henry VIII. Now, this was when King Henry VIII was a Catholic. Later on in his life, he became, well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very generous term to call him a Protestant. Very generous. And I don't even think it's theologically correct to call him a Protestant. Later in his life, he became Church of England head. But theologically, he was kind of a Catholic till he died. I mean, when he died, he left in his will like thousands of pounds to pay purgatory after he died. So he still had core Catholic beliefs. But anyway, this was when he was a, a Catholic. King Henry VIII wrote letters and, and you know, things against Luther. So he was strongly anti 
Reformation at this point. As one of the leading theologians in England, his opposition to the king's divorce was not favorably received. There's kind of all these subplots. William Tyndale doesn't agree with the king's divorce, so William Tyndale, ostracized. And then the fact that he's trying to translate the Bible as well um, just makes him even worse. Anyway, the story of his life, he traveled Europe. He was kind of like a, um, a, refu- uh, a fugitive. He was befriended by a man called Henry Phillips. He was taken to Vilvoor Castle in Belgium. They attempted to be a truce, and he had a choice. They wanted William Tyndale to come back to England, and they really didn't want to kill the most leading theologian in Britain. And there was a man in England, I think his name was Thomas Cromwell. He tried to bring a reconciliation between Tyndale and the king. And he said, come back to England. We'll sort things out when you get there. Tyndale said, though, no. He was only 42 at the time. He's left his country of his birth. He said, no, I will only return to England if the king authorizes the translation of the Bible. What was the principle he lived by? The Bible for what? Everyone. What's the foundational principle of the Bible for everyone? The priesthood of all what? Believers, that everyone has access to the Bible. All men are created equal. He has the, he has the option, do I die for the principle I've lived by my whole life, or do I return to my home country? He said, no, I'm not going back to England unless the king authorizes the translation of the Bible. I think about many other people would have just been, okay, I'll go back, I'll negotiate something. He's like, no, no, it's this or this, black and white, there's no in between. That was the principle, his principle was that all men are created equal. I don't know if he verbalized that, but that's really what he lived by. The Bible was for all men, and it's a product of this biblical principle. When you read the sign, it says that within a year afterwards, a Bible was placed in every parish church by the king's command. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He died by strangulation. They thought they would be more humane by strangling him first, then burning him. So they strangled him, and before he lost all breath, his last words were, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. He then strangled to death, then they burned him. He never saw the answer to his prayer, but within a year, his prayer was answered. It's better to live and die for a principle than just kind of, you know, go through life without that. From the outset, Protestantism rejected the critical medieval distinction between the sacred and the secular orders. From this position, so while this position can easily be interpreted as a claim for the desacralization of the sacred, that's what the Catholics said. They said, you're you're making what's sacred unsacred. They said, no, 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 we're not making what's sacred unsacred. It can be equally well understood as the claim for the sacralization of the secular. It's like we're leveling the playing field here. As early as 1520, Luther laid the fundamental conceptual foundations for created sacred space within the secular. His doctrine of the priesthood of all believers asserted that there is no genuine difference of status between the spiritual and temporal order, or between the pastors and the laity, or between the priest and the members. All Christians are called to be priests and can exercise that calling within the everyday world. The idea of calling was fundamentally redefined. No longer was it to be about being called to serve God by leaving the world. It was now about serving God in the world. This idea of the priesthood of all believers. Now, how did that happen? You know, one of the key things that this author brings out was called the priesthood of all readers. 
By making the Bible accessible in the language of the people, you were then creating an educated laity, which they had never had before. With an educated laity, they could now challenge the priests on what they were saying. In some ways, what's happening today with the internet boom is almost like a repeat of this. Then you had this massive infusion of information that the members never had before. Today, it's almost like you're having a repeat of that. With the internet, people have access to information that previously you only had access to if you went here, there, and wherever to like, you know, library this and study this. Now people have access to so much more information, it's kind of levels the playing field again. Um, these are just some of the different church structures that we got through the Reformation that were different from the papal order, um, though it's not quite, um, still, it still was quite hierarchical. In the Episcopal, or which is Anglican or Church of England, it was um, bishops, priests, deacons, and then members. And that's kind of Anglican, Lutheran, Orthodox. Then you have the Presbyterian structure. And as I asked at the beginning, which structures do we as Adventists have? Someone said Presbyterian, someone said um, representative. We, our church structure does have elements of the Presbyterian structure that John, John Calvin set up. Um, the authority rests on church membership through assemblies. The local church is governed by one assembly. This assembly is governed by a wider assembly. That's kind of like your church board and church business meeting, kind of. Um, the theory of governance is developed by John Calvin and John Knox, most popular in Reformation movement churches. Um, then you've got independent congregational church, which kind of, I guess, came more after the Reformation, where you basically just have one singular church, pastor, a board that runs a church, and everything stays local. Um, they have the authority in theology, personnel tithe, and it's all localized. Then you have the representative structure, which came later after the Reformation, which is what we would call as the Adventist church structure, which is different to the papal structure. Um, it's representative. The authority is in the membership from below as opposed to up top. You know, sometimes people look at the Adventist structure and they say, oh, well, you've got a union, then you've got a conference, and you've got a division. Oh, it's not Catholic. Someone say amen. Because the power comes from down up as opposed to top down. The people up top only have authority as it's given to them by those that have elected them from the bottom up. Um, Last couple of um, points before we close. The reform of the church's life and thought was not about beginning again. Now, this is an interesting one. The, the, say Reformation is a dangerous idea. My point here is this. None of the reformers planned to be reformers. Their idea wasn't to, like, start a new church. They, initially, they just said, we just want to have, you know, we just want to change what the church is thinking and doing. We don't want to have a complete reconstruction. But as they set about to be faithful to truth... It ultimately led them that way. But their original motive was just to see what was right done. Luther's idea was to reform the existing church that had lost its bearings during the Middle Ages. Like after reformers, Wycliffe as well did not see at the opening of his work where it would lead him. He did not deliberately set himself in opposition to Rome. But as he came devoted to truth, it would lead him that way. Um, Luther himself it was not without a terrible struggle with himself that Luther decided upon a final separation from the church. It was about this time that he wrote, I feel more and more every day how difficult it is to lay aside the scruples that I have imbibed since Oh, how much pain it caused me, though I had the scriptures on my side, to justify to myself that I should make a stand alone. He never set out to, like, start the Lutheran church. He set out to be faithful to God's word, and this faithfulness to God's word led him that way, though that wasn't his original. And you find that common theme throughout the Reformation, that they never planned to do that, it just kind of happened. 
Um, Gutenberg Press, without the new technology, Luther's protest would have just been a small thing that wasn't, you know, he never, he never planned. He never planned. In fact, you can, you can tell that Luther never planned his 95 Theses to be what his 95 Theses became because he wrote his 95 Theses in Latin. If Luther wanted his 95 Theses to have been like, boom, he would have written it in German. By writing his thesis in Latin, he only planned for it to be a theological discussion at the professors of Wittenberg. That's all he wanted it to be. But some bright spark, praise the Lord, got the 95 Theses, translated it into German because of the Gutenberg press. It got printed and copied and sent all over Germany, and Luther was like, whoa, what happened to me? Like, he never wanted that. Himself, he said, the publicity did not appeal to me. He wasn't planning for that. Originally written in Latin, they were translated into German, printed up, distributed to a wider audience. The result was that within a few weeks, they were all over Germany and beyond, which was what had begun as a dispute among a few theologians and church officials had become an international controversy on the account of the printing press. Throughout the Reformers, they never planned. I've shared this before. The Holy Club in England was a campus ministry at Oxford University. It was a campus ministry at Christchurch College, Oxford University. Charles Wesley started it. There was a group of, I don't know, about 10 or 15 people. They would meet for Bible study. Today, it's grown into be the Methodist Church. Campus ministry to Methodist Church. All they wanted to do was to be faithful Christians while they were studying at Oxford University. That was what they wanted to do. It led them somewhere... But this foundational core was humility and not a desire for greatness. The Holy Club was set up at Oxford University. They met every week. They were called the Oxford Methodists in a local journal. And initially, he traveled the country visiting small groups. It became something much, much bigger. And the last point that I want to share before we close is this. We are duty-bound by our conscience to the Bible over councils or the church. That was a revolutionary new idea that the Reformation shared. That is the building block of Seventh-day Adventism. Adventism is built on this principle, that we're duty-bound to our conscience, to the Bible, over councils, over churches. You find this throughout the Reformation. Luther, he posted his 95 Theses, his intention was to reform the church. Luther was condemned. He realizes that the reform of the church won't happen. His loyalty to conscience over the Bible became prominent. And then you have that famous quote by Luther. This is in Worms. It's a Reformation monument. It's pretty impressive. And not far from this place, there's a spot on the ground where, there's a, there's, there's a, um, where they believe Luther was actually standing. And he gave these famous words, unless I am convinced by scripture and what? Plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is what? Captive to the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Profound words. He was laying down a framework. I don't care about this council. I don't care about the authority of the council. My allegiance is to the word of God. My conscience compels me so. Over and over, you see different reformers repeating this, this kind of idea. They believe he was standing here where he said these words in 1521. After he said these words, he was asked. It's kind of like he's just done his mic drop speech. And after he's done his mic drop speech, they then say, oh, by the way, uh, do you still want to recant? To which he said, I will retract 
nothing. Luther wasn't, you know, everything we would epitomize in a biblical Christian today. He had many faults about him that modern history likes to highlight, you know. He was against Jews, or he drank, or he did this, or he, you know, whatever. Modern history often tries to tear down people based on what they didn't do as opposed to what they may have stood for in a different time. We cannot always judge people in the past by the morals or the knowledge we have today. For this one thing, though, standing for principle, conscience and the Bible over councils and the church, he laid a foundation that many other reformers took up after him. And it's a powerful foundation that he laid. The Protestant Reformation map of Europe changed greatly. I mean, the green would still be Catholic. Um, these dots here are the Huguenots in France. Then you've got the Lutherans here, Scandinavia, parts of Germany, Lutheran. Presbyterian is the blue. Church of England is the, is the purple. The map of Europe would change greatly over the 16th century. From being just Catholic, it would change massively. Now that's slightly big. You see the Orthodox Christians there, the Muslims down here. It changed greatly. These ideas are what changed the map. And these ideas propelled the church on a journey. It wasn't complete, but it propelled the church on a journey that it needed to take until it would be completed one day. These are a couple of the ideas summarized in this presentation, the Reformation's dangerous idea. Our next presentation we're going to look at is called Faith and Formulas. We're going to look at Martin Luther, we're going to look at Jacob Arminius, we're going to look at John Wesley, and how their ideas have shaped what we stand for as a people today. As Adventists, are we Lutheran? Are we Presbyterian? Are we, you know, what kind of is our heritage when it comes to salvation and some of these questions? Um, let's bow our heads for a prayer. Then I want to introduce some of the team as well that are just kind of at the back, the lineage team. As my husband prayer, Father in heaven, we thank you. And I pray, Lord, that some of these, these concepts may be a reality in our life. That we would stand for right though the heavens fall. That we would be true, as in the book Education it says, as a needle to the pole. That our conscience would be bound and captive to the word of God. That we would treasure the scriptures that have been handed down to us at such great peril. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Got about five minutes before the break. I just want to introduce some of the lineage team that's here. We don't have everyone here, but we have some. Um, Ashley, Iko, Jasper, Eden. If you like any of the pictures in my presentation, then it's because of this guy right here. Ashley, um, in fact, Ashley works as our photographer, and you know, in fact, let me, let me share something about the lineage team. Hmm? Works. <laughs> works is a generous word, too. Um, the lineage team, uh, we've got about eight or nine or ten. I mean, I work for the church, so I'm paid by the church, but everyone really on the team is doing it voluntary, and they've just sacrificed their time. Ashley works for Apple, you know, Regent Street Apple. He's a genius. He does teaches the drawing and all that kind of stuff. Um, he takes holiday to come take pictures for lineage. That's the sacrifice that you know, people have given to, to lineage and kind of making this project be a reality, what it is today. So he's our photographer and graphic designer. Aiko 
is my wife. Amen. Um, and all that that entails. But she's um, most recently has done sound and other things. She kind of has a knack of picking up whatever she puts her hand to. And so she did the sound on the most recent uh, filming that we had here in America and just kind of works as assistant in producing. She does the subtitles. If you look at the, um, the YouTube, um, we have what we call community contributions. So we have um, translation on YouTube in Spanish, Portuguese, French, and, and different languages. Now we do that translation, what we call community contributions. You go to YouTube, you click on these three little dots by the video, and it says add translation. You click on add translation, and then you can then basically translate in a language that's not there already. Ico goes through all the episodes and times all of that stuff in English. So when you go there, all you have to do is literally look at the English and write it in your language, and it just goes very, very easily. So she kind of sets the subtitling up to make the subtitling possible um, and puts all the grammar correct that I mess up as I'm filming. Um, Jasper is our videographer. Uh, he does, in season one, Jasper was kind of the B-roll guy, all of the drone shots, all of the, um, the gimbal, uh, whatever shots Jasper did. In season two, which you haven't seen yet, um, we're doing a season two, which is going to be on Adventist history. He was the main shooter in season two. He, he gave up a job as a pastor in Jakarta, the international church in, in, in Indo there in Indonesia, in Jakarta, to come work with Lineage. Um, and as I say, work is a very generous term because um, I've just shook his hand so far. Um, <laughs> But um, he's really sacrificed a lot to be a part of the team. And, you know, God is blessing him in his ministry. Uh, he does other things as well. And uh, they'll be at the booth later on. Eden Matheson, he's studying engineering at um, some university in London. And he, if you've seen our videos, the behind-the-scene videos um, that we've put up, we've put several of them up so far, he's the guy that does all the behind-the-scene filming and has produced those videos behind the scene. So he often comes with us on trips when he can and just kind of captures... What, it, what each shoot kind of takes. If you haven't seen any of the behind the scenes videos, and I encourage you to have a look at some of them, they kind of give you a different side to lineage. You'll see all the, all the mess ups and all the kind of things that get edited out before it goes public. Um, so yeah, and we're just here as the, um, uh, we have other people on the team as well. Clive Kute is on the team. He's not here, he's back home with his family. Um, Anton Stewart, there's a, couple, there's, there's a couple of others on the team that weren't able to make it to GYC, um, but we're, we're glad for these guys who are here, and they'll be on the booth later on if you have any questions or, or whatever you want to um, ask or talk to them about in regards to the, the videos and, and, and so on. We have DVDs that are available for purchase as well. Um, what, question, what time is it? Time for a break. Yeah. If you've got any questions, if you want to maybe come forward, join the break and ask any of us, but we're taking a 15-minute break now. Our next presentation will be at 10.30, I believe. Is that correct, 10.30? And it's going to be Faith and Formulas. Thank you. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.